You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Road. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. The regional championships are in the books where 1,200 players tried to break Pioneer. Lawson Zandi joins us from DreamHack Dallas to share the latest technology from Boros Convoke, Rakdos Goblins, a new inverter combo, and much more. That's all coming up on Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan, coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas. And I'm joined once again by a returning guest, returning host, maybe. Fresh off of DreamHack Dallas, it's Lawson Zandy. Lawson, welcome. Howdy, howdy. I am also deep in the heart of Texas, about four hours north of you, though, because Texas is big. So... I realized as I was saying this that I have no concept of the, the proper Texas accent. Do you have like a Texas drawl? Uh, I don't have much of a Texas drawl. Uh, if I go deep West Texas, I have a super big one because I will spend time with my uh, family out there. But uh, uh, no, if I am if I am around city folk, it is it is OK. I sound like an adult, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it it can happen. It can happen. I'm not I'm not trying to hide it. I have no shame. Well, if you can pull it off, you're welcome to like redo <laughs> the Texas intro. But yeah, great to have you back, Lawson. It's been a while. Always great to hear from you. Thank you. Always happy to be here. Um, randomly today, uh, I know this is might be a surprise to listeners, but uh, I'm super excited to talk Pioneer. I know I've always been the modern guy who only wants to talk about the modern, but uh, I, I'm, I'm here to talk to Pioneer. Yeah, so what happened there? We're usually hearing about your sick 5.0 modern brews, your Windbrisk Heights obsession. Or if you're in the Faithless Brewing Discord, Lawson is often there cracking the latest draft format, racking up trophies. But a couple of weeks back, you messaged me about this insane Boros Pioneer deck, and you said you've been going very, very deep. Deep is uh, uh, definitely an understatement. I have, uh, I have worked really, really hard to try and do some really, really cool things. I am, I definitely won't say I'm a, you know, pioneer one trick um, in any sorts, but I, I had some buddies that were qualified for the event. Um, they have a little bit less free time to do testing than me. They're also a little bit less tied into magic and don't have access to every magic card that they could think of. So I told them that I'd be more than happy to do some testing and, you know, pass along some information that I found. And uh, boy, oh boy, did I find some information. Yeah, I can't wait to pick your brain about that. So before we dive into all that, just some context. The event we're talking about here is the United States Regional Championship, also known as DreamHack Dallas. Another event deep in the heart of Texas. And just down the road from you, Lawson. So even though I think you and I were not qualified, you did make it down to the event. I understand you spent most of the weekend there watching some games, coaching some games even, and just, just getting the lay of the land, picking up on all the latest tech. 
Yeah, um, it, it was definitely weird. You know, I come from a, a background of playing Magic very, very competitively. Um, I've been a little bit out of the paper scene for grinding events. Um, I had some work stuff going on this weekend, but, you know, when I finished up in the morning, uh, I went straight to DreamHack, where it's, you know, Magic players and cosplayers all around. And I'm in a, you know, three-piece suit and walking <laughs> around with a, a notepad. You know, it looked like I was, you know, a scout or a, you know, basketball coach, you know. Um, but, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. Had, a uh, had, uh, eight guys that I had been working with and then had a lot of, um, big time buddies that, um, I hadn't really got to spend time with in a while. So I got to be really, really hands-on with them when it comes to, you know, what's going on in the format in their eyes. And yeah, can't, can't ask for anything better when it comes to magic. I'm just picturing you as like a magic talent scout, like a Friday Night Lights high school game or something. <laughs> Compiling your top 100 magic prospects list in the state of Texas. I hey man, I I brought pizza to my guys. You know, it was you know middle of round seven. Guys finishing up a long match, and you know he he was out of it. So gotta gotta get that boy some calories and get him into the next one. So <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who are not as up to speed on the current state of organized play, a little refresher might be in order. When we say regional championships or RCs, we are talking about a tournament that is one step below the Pro Tour. The Pro Tour returned uh, just this year, actually, and that's a three times per year event that, when it happens, looks a little bit like the Pro Tours of old. People from all around the world have qualified as kind of the highest level, just one step shy of worlds. So you have players from Japan, from Europe, from the USA, from Latin America. That's the Pro Tour of which uh, Minneapolis was the most recent iteration. Now, feeding each Pro Tour is the regional championship, which is a little bit of a misleading name because back in our day, Lawson, regionals was, you know, somewhere between like your local event and national championships. Mm -hmm. But here, region means like nationals or perhaps even bigger. So the like Latin American region is all of South America and they get like, mm -hmm. one slot <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> it's, it's quite sad. Maybe four. I think two slots is what they're going to get now. It's actually oh, it's no, quite brutal. Two. So first of all, you have to qualify for these tournaments. So when you hear myself or Lawson talking about an RCQ that we went to at the shop on a weekend, like a 1K or whatever, winning that event might earn you a qualification to the upcoming regional championship. And you can think of those as basically a nationals. Would that be fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. You know, a lot of small feeder events from local places you know, hey, if you can win your store's 32-man sealed deck tournament, you can go play with the best and brightest of your community um, in Dallas, Texas at a big, <laughs> you know, gaming event. Which, by the way, DreamHack is a huge gaming event. I don't know how many Magic players keep up with other esports, but there were, you know, every major esports team at this thing doing other stuff. You know, there was a Fortnite tournament, a Halo tournament, a Smash tournament, a... Rocket League um, uh, World Championship event. So it, it was a giant event for, you know, professional gaming and also magic players. <laughs> they they did sequester us off in a corner because uh, we take up more room and are harder to deal with than any other, um, you know, one, I think. So, you know, it is what it is, but it, it's cool to be with the, you know, uh, the, the pretty people of the world. They put you in the tabletop annex across the street, basically. Mm hmm. Yeah, so regional championships slash nationals, they will happen three times a year. This one in Dallas was Pioneer format. So Lawson mentioned 
his team or his friends were qualified for this. In order to do well at this event, you had to really crack the metagame at the top tier of Pioneer. And just the way the timing worked out, this Boros Hogek, or Boros Convoke deck, broke onto the scene, what, about three weeks ago? Is that is that roughly when you started? Um, yeah, I would say, I would say, you know, uh, two, two weeks ago is when it hit its pinnacle of people trying to beat it. But, uh, yeah, I think the first, you know, list came out probably three, maybe three and a half weeks ago. So still very, very new. Um, lot to, you know, work on in it. In the past three weeks before a big event might be just enough time for a deck to get perfected and take the event by storm. But those days are long gone. <laughs> These days in the age of Twitter and Twitch streamers, three weeks is enough time for the deck to be declared broken be declared unplayable to go through like six or seven life cycles of death and rebirth and really get hammered out. So I'm I'm curious to hear all about your process working on the the Boros deck Lawson and how many of your your team members ended up playing it in the event. Uh so of the we were we were ready to field eight copies of it. Uh we only ended up fielding two. Mm. Um the biggest thing that I will say when it comes to the red-white deck overall, and this is kind of like the day zero preparing for the event, was um, this deck is incredibly easy to play bad against. Um, when you don't know the rules of engagement, you lose. You just lose the game no matter what deck you're playing. You know, a lot of people, you know, they want to hold their fatal push to kill things that are powerful and good cards. And against the red-white deck... You want it to kill a piece of cardboard. It doesn't have to have any text on it, you know? Hmm. Um, the the thing that people were making mistakes on when I first picked the deck up is, you know, you play your Thraben Inspector on turn one, and you, you never want to push someone's Thraben Inspector. You know, that that doesn't feel like a win. You know, they, they got a clue, you know? But if you don't push my Thraben Inspector, turn two, I can, you know, Gleeful Demolition the clue. Now I've got three one ones. If you're not pushing my 1-2, you're definitely not pushing my 1-1s. And then, you know, maybe I play another one random 1-drop, you know? Are you going to push this? Well, I'm sorry to let you know, once that creature comes into play, you don't get priority before I cast my 5-mana Convoke thing on turn 2. And the moment you cast a 5-mana Convoke thing on turn 2, the game is over. Just, like, largely, the games are very over. If you're playing a venerated Loxodon and all of your one power creatures randomly now have two power and then your opponent plays their Blood Tithe Harvester, you're super far ahead of them. If you are playing Night Errand Devios, you're digging six cards deep to find Goblin Bushwhacker, Burning Tree Emissary, and you already have five creatures in play. So games that you convoke a five drop in play on turn two, you are, I would say, um, reasonably 90% to win. And so when I first picked up the deck, it just like we couldn't lose with it. No one's pushing Thraben Inspector and you just get to crush the entire format. Then a couple of days later, people that were good figured out, oh, yeah, you just pushed the Thraben Inspector. And now it's a, you know, not 90-10 matchup. It's a, you know, 55-45, maybe 60-40, like, you know, much more reasonable. And then a couple of days after that, the people that could not figure out the play patterns resolved their issues with the deck by just playing sideboard hate cards main deck. Um, things that are good against the deck are Wraths, you know? So the you know most playable ones generically were like Deafening Clarion, maybe Extinction Event, 
you know, those are cards that sometimes end up in your main deck, you know, not on accident. In testing, I was running into End the Festivities main, <laughs> uh, Hitetsugo, um, Destroys All. Um, the, the one that is actually best against the deck is Settle the Wreckage, because Settle the Wreckage, you have to be in the combat step. And so you, it like, not only does it blow up your entire board, but it also stops random bushwhacker nonsense from killing you. And by the way, the decks playing Settle the Wreckage are also playing Temporary Lockdown and Supreme Verdict and Farewell. These aren't instead of each other. These are in addition to. Um, I, I did run into a game where I got Wrath six times in seven turns. And uh, we did not win that one. Um, so So people, you know, preparing for this event became very very hostile to uh the as people were calling it a red white hogak deck it, it's just an aggro deck it's it's not any better than that it's it's not resilient like hogak was it's it's way worse at mulliganing than hogak ever was it you know sometimes you would in game one against hogak play Leyline of the void and that would still not be good enough if if you play main deck Hitetsuko and um, and the festivities and all those other things, yeah, you're gonna you, you can beat this deck if you really want to, you know. So a couple of our guys, because of that exact reason of not getting reasonable testing done, actually said, "I can't get any online testing with Red White. I can't get any testing with the other decks because no one's deck list right now on Moto is reasonable because they're just all trying to kill this Red White thing." I'm just going to play the deck that I knew, you know, three weeks ago. So we fielded, um, you know, some Grease Fang, some Mono Green, some Blue White Control. Um, everything was very playable in this event. Uh, the only thing I told people to steer away from was Black Red Midrange, the deck that was by far the most represented thing. It just feels like everyone... Um, when they know you're a Fatal Push Thoughtseize deck, because this is actually an open deckless tournament... You know, you don't get the, I'm going to mulligan to see if I can have a great opening hand if someone knows that you're playing the mid-range deck, you know? Bad sevens are kept instead of going to six when you're playing a deck that's Fatal Push, Thought Seize, Shieldred, you know? So you lose a lot of percentage points there, and playing mirror matches all day was something that I thought was not going to be super fun. So, um, other than that, though, the Pioneer format is, like, very, very open, the gameplay might not be everyone's favorite, but like it is an incredibly well-balanced format right now. So I've got a snapshot here in the front of us of the Pioneer metagame from May 19th through May 28th. This is from Frank Carson, who writes an amazing column over on the Mothership called Metagame Mentor. So he compiled results just from Premier Tournaments over a 10-day span. So this was about you know, a week before the U.S. Regional Championship. About 500 deck lists are represented in this sample, and he uses uh, some interesting calculations to give what he calls the weighted metagame percentage, where you know each win is worth more uh, later in the tournament. So it gives you a snapshot of what you might expect to see on day two of a big event. And I think it looks you know about like what you're describing, where Rakdos is by far the most popular, most represented deck. He has it at 19.7%, followed by Monogreen Devotion at 11.8, so that's your elves into Karn. Azorius Control, 7.6, and I'd heard mixed things about this deck over the past month or so, with some people swear by it, others point out tournaments where it just has an absolutely abysmal conversion rate. It is one of those decks that c 
could very easily, like you're saying, bring in all the rest, you know, take out your laydown arms, convert them to temporary lockdowns, and have a great day on Magic Online against the red-white aggro players. But I was not clear, uh, at least from the snapshot, like how strong this deck really is. Grease Fang at 6.6% is the fourth most popular, and then Boros Convoke, new to the format, but the fifth most popular deck during this stretch of time. Rounding out the top 10, Lotus Field, Is It Creativity, Mono White Humans, Rakdos Sack, and Azorius Spirits. So just looking at this, Lawson, does this more or less match your assessment of like how strong these decks are, or is this more of the case where this is some of these are popular, but you would definitely steer steer clear of them? Um, no, I think this is pretty um pretty right on with what's going on. I think the decks that I've um, would say are a little underrepresented from this data set. The the big ones to me, and this this might come as a surprise because this is a deck that you might not be thinking about. Um, I think Rakdos Sack is a phenomenal deck um, right now in the format. Um, it's actually the only deck that put two copies into the top eight of the event this past weekend. Um, it's chilling at a casual 4.7% of the metagame in this snapshot. Other decks that I think are really, really powerful. Um, the Neoform Atraxa deck, as we're going to talk about a little bit later on, I think is a phenomenal deck choice. And then one that is incredible to me that it's so slept on, um, Goblins. Um, oh. Goblins was the deck that I told people, if you wanted to play something that is spicy and out of left field, um, the thing that I was kind of the most excited about, and it's 0.4% of the Pioneer Medic game from Frank Karsten's, um evaluation the event that happened this weekend actually also has all of their statistics and uh for all of the decks in the field and they are incredibly close to these numbers um Rakdos midrange was 21 percent of the field it was uh green devotion was 11 percent and then the surprising one to me was, is it creativity playing Gear Hulk mm. um, was 7.5% of the field. I, I will say, and this is something to keep in mind if anyone listening to this is someone that's going to be playing in one of these larger events. Every person who's playing in this event had to win a tournament to get here. These are all very established magic players. Established magic players are going to want to play decks that give them agency and you have choices, you know? Classic, I want to be smart, let me play Thoughtseize, let me play Counterspells, let me do X, let me do Y, let me not play Goblin Guide, you know? Like, that's that's a very common thing that, you know, people want to feel like their actions matter and the choices they're making all throughout the day are what got them to win. A lot of these decks are decks that, you know, mid-range and is it creativity specifically or the I'm a smart person, let me play this deck. I think they're fine choices. Um, not to, you know, be negative on the deck itself, or if that's someone's um, yum, you know, I'm not going to yuck that for you, but uh, I, I think they are a little overrepresented. So you could not convince these players to sleeve up the Foundry Street denizens and the Legion loyalists and the conspicuous snoops? I've tried to do it before in the past. I've tried, I've tried in the past to you know, get seven-time uh, Pro Tour players to, no, 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 this is why Rift Bolt's good this week. And they're like, no, I'm not, you can't, you can't make me. You can't make me. Well, given what you just said about uh, your relative assessment of these decks, let's just scroll down here and take a look at this matrix of matchup win rates from specifically the Dreamhack Dallas. 
on the one hand, this is just one tournament, but it, it is fairly large, right? Like you're saying, this is a 1,200-player tournament. Everyone there had already qualified by winning another tournament. This is a pretty cutthroat, high-level event. Of the top 10 decks, the ones that I just named off, which one came out on top in terms of match win rate against uh, the non-mirror? Well, we have Azuria Spirits and Rakdos Sacrifice. Those were the two best-performing decks, each winning 57% of their matchups against decks other than the mirror match. Mono Green came in third at 54%, Mono White Humans at 53.4%, Grease Fang in fifth. And from, from there, we get down to decks that were performing at 50% or lower. That's Blue White Control, Enigmatic Incarnation, Lotus Field at 49%, Boros Convoke uh, in eighth spot there at just 47% win rates, Rakdos. By far the most popular deck in the fields, only managed a 47% win rate, and creativity was the worst of them all at 45. Am I reading that right? 45? Yeah. Ouch. Yeah, you are reading that correctly. <laughs> you are. What happened? Um. So I, I do. I, I, first, I do want to start with Boris Convoke because I know this is the the hotness of the format going on right now. Um. When we look at the matrix on it, there are basically every deck. It has a negative win rate. Um, <laughs> against except for two things it, it is a positive win rate against exactly two decks um the positive win rate it was having was lotus field combo just like the combo deck that can't win the game on turn four is dying to the deck that's attacking for 12 on turn three news at 11 um you know like those two decks just are never going to match up well for the lotus field deck so of course boros just farms them all day that's awesome and the other one which will surprise people, is Rakdos Midrange. The deck that a lot of people would play to try to beat Convoke is the A Million Removal Spells, you know, Shieldred deck. But because of that, every single Boros player was main decking hate against um, the Rakdos deck. So for anyone who hasn't played the Red-White um, deck, there's kind of a, a stock... Uh, 56-ish cards in the deck. And the most important thing that's going on is what are we playing on turn one? Mm -hmm. Most of the turn one plays, um, there's the eight one-drop creatures that make an artifact. So it's going to be Thraben Inspector, Valdir and Epicure. There's going to be four uh, Gleeful Demolitions. So that's 12. And then you, you want to have between four and six other one-drop creatures. Um, just so you have the the mass amount to be convoking a five drop into play on turn two um, off of a Gleeful Demolition or an Ornithopter or two or, you know, some combinations of these things. And a lot of people's go to thing in this position was Giant Killer. Um, Giant Killer is a one drop that taps for convoke on turn one. But if you have other one drops going on in your hand, you just don't have to play it. And then it's a thing that can kill... Um, she, uh, it can kill Shieldred, it can kill Atraxa, it can kill uh, Grease Fang, because a lot of times in the Grease Fang matchup, them hitting you for 13 and making some angels actually isn't good enough if that's all that's going to happen. Um, you oh, can wow. you can sometimes push through enough damage that next turn, but you need to be able to take a blocker or two off the field. If you have, you know, Giant Killer, Giant Killer, go to combat, smash you, that can be enough to get through there. So there were just all of these random Giant Killers main deck and then a lot of the sideboards had um, uh, the big um, way to turn that black-red matchup positive is 
Oh no, it's um a collective endurance, I believe is the magic card. Um collective effort. Collective effort. Thank you. It's got uh, escalate. <laughs> where you can tap creatures to escalate it for more modes. I believe it's from Eldritch Moon. Yes. So um it is one of those cards that for the longest time people could not figure out how to make it work outside of exactly standard, where it also wasn't super popular. Um, it has three modes, just like Collector Brutality, the one that most people know. So its Escalate cost is you have to tap an untapped creature you control, which is very good in this deck. We've got a lot of creatures just hanging out. So, you know, that that's a super easy thing to check off. All right, so mode one is Destroy Target Creature with four power. So in the black-red matchup, that is Shieldred. Um, Destroy Target Enchantment. Feels like it's a throwaway. It's really not, um, because Fable of the Mirror Breaker is the best card in the black-red deck. So it's awesome that you can blow it up before they get to their backside of it. And then putting a counter on each of your guys is also insane in a deck that is making a lot of guys, you know? Um, so plenty of red-white decks were playing two or three collective efforts in addition to having three or four giant killers in the main. When you have seven things that say destroy target Shieldred against your opponent's deck that has three copies of Shieldred, you're going to win that battle, you know? And because of that, the red-white decks just farmed that matchup all weekend, and it wasn't remotely close. So other than that, though, everyone came ready for a red-white. Like, people people knew that that deck was going to be able to do scary things if you were not ready for it. Um, so people, you know... <laughs> Made sure not to be embarrassed. I saw an amazing picture on Twitter of somebody casting what was called the greatest collective effort of all time. And they had tapped two creatures to exile a Traxa, Praetor's Voice, and a Fable the Mirror Breaker and just clear their opponent's board. <laughs> so leave them with absolutely nothing and pump their entire team by one for their troubles. I, I saw one blow up a temporary lockdown. Oh my gosh. That had five creatures underneath it, and no. then they uh, kicked a bushwhacker to give all of them haste and killed him. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, 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 that's well played. You know, like that card has so many words on it. Uh, yeah. Like, So a card like that is able to swing the Rakdos mid-range matchup back into positive, but all the rest of the matchups came up in the red. Now, did that match your experience mm -hmm. in testing? Do you feel like the field overcorrected for this deck, given how it didn't really do that well? Or is this just a direct, if you play hate, it's going to suffer? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think that a lot of people's feeling towards Pioneer recently, um, unless you are a diehard Pioneer person, is, you know, the format's not super interesting. You know, I'll, I'll play a deck that does a powerful thing, and I'll, you know... I'll, I'll do what I can at the event, you know, but when a deck pops up three weeks before your, you know, giant tournament that you're flying across the country for and people are automatically calling it Hogak part two, um, you're going to do a little bit of homework to, hey, how do I play this matchup? You know, and, you know, where, where people kind of have an idea about like what things you should think about against playing against like Mono Green Devotion, you know, try and interact with Llanowar Elf because that card can be problematic in the early game. Like those are general tips that people like remember in their head. But like I knew people that don't play very much constructed that were like, here are the seven cards that I'm bringing in against this red white deck. And I'm 
changing these one or two things, whether I'm on the play or the draw. And then I could ask them, awesome, cool, what matchups other than this red-white deck do you change your sideboarding when you're on the player of the draw? They'd be like, oh, I don't, I'm not sure. I just know the red-white one. And you're just like, okay, cool, cool. You've prepared for this matchup. Good for you. Have fun. <laughs> Speaking of Llanowar Elf, this is off-topic from the red-white deck, but there was a very interesting tweet from a player named Bobby Fortinelli. He's a East Coast grinder on the SCG Tour expert in the monogreen devotion deck and what he said in this tweet was as a monogreen player his record against lotus field specifically is 27 and 4 in his last however many weeks and he feels like it's almost a deterministic kill like you should beat the lotus field deck as a monogreen player almost every time and he said lotus player combos agree and yet the lotus field deck usually wins because the monogreen players are misplaying the matchup so when you see something like that it's like Really? Could that be true? And I'm just looking at the matchup matrix here from DreamHack, and wouldn't you know it, but Mono Green Devotion went 47% against Lotus Field. <laughs> they didn't have Bobby Fortinelli's tips. Like, it, it was shocking to see this, see this, this tweet combined with this matchup matrix. Did you, do you know what I'm talking about, Lawson? I do, know, I do know what you're talking about. I had a buddy of mine playing Mono Green play against Lotus Field four times, and he beat it all four times. Um, I'll, I'll give away the secret. Um... You can bring in cards from your sideboard, even though you're a Karn deck. I know that sounds really weird, but um, Stonebrain is really, really good against the Lotus Field deck. And when it's an open deckless tournament, you just like, you know exactly what things they can do. And so you just like can mulligan for Stonebrain in game two. So that's <laughs> what I thought the advice was going to be, but it's actually even more specific than that. Okay. Um, I'll put a link to the tweet in the show notes, but I think it's also on Fire Shoes' Twitter feed. Bobby Fortinelli, mm -hmm. that's the player's name. So he says that all you have to do is the following things. You mulligan for an elf and a Karn. You give yourself at least two hands to find this, sometimes three. You get to play Karn on turn three, and then you're going to do the following sequence. Your first Karn is going to put the Damping Sphere into your hand. Your second Karn activation on your next turn, when you have five mana, is going to get the Pithy Needle. Well, Depends. If they have the Lotus Field in play, you get the Pithy Needle. If they don't have the Lotus Field in play, you just get Stone Brain and the game, game is immediately over. Mm -hmm. Stone Brain takes out the Lotus Fields. That's game. But assuming that they've already have a Lotus Field in play, which they probably do, you have to do a different sequence. And this is where he says most of these matchups are lost. Like, they forget mm -hmm. to account for Otawara. So most mm -hmm. players know that, okay, you play the Pithy Needle first, name Boseju, and then play your Damping Sphere. But what they don't do is they do not leave two mana available so that if the Lotus Field player has Otawara in their hand, of which they play several copies, you have to leave yourself enough mana to replay the Damping Sphere on that same turn, which you have enough mana to do because, again, you, this is your fourth turn, you have your Elf plus four lands. So you have enough to go Pithy Needle first, Damping Sphere, and still have two mana left over to replay Damping Sphere if it gets bounced during the main phase. The Lotus Field player has to do the Odawara right then because their Lotus Field is going to shrink from a 3-mana to a 1-mana as soon as the Damping Sphere hits. So they have to float the mana then and Otawara right away. You replay Damping Sphere and that's game. He says, if you do that, you will go 27-4 and four against Lotus Field. If you don't do that, if you screw it up, if you just like try to save mana by spending your 2-mana something else, play an extra elf that turn, you get Otawara and you just lose. You, you go from a win to a loss just like that. I've got one more hot one for that matchup. Um, probably around 35-ish percent of the green decks 
have a one of shadow spear in the sideboard as a way to gain a bunch of life in the mid game. Um, if you have shadow spear in your sideboard, you can go get shadow spear in the matchup because it takes away the hex proof nature of Lotus field. And then you can besage um, Lotus field, um, <laughs> which I saw happen twice um, from my buddy. And uh, that is, that's good living. That's because the, the sacrifice trigger is still on the stack. You know, you still have to sack two lands, even though your, uh, your Lotus field is, you know, it, it, it turns into a basic, you know, the besage gives you one land to sacrifice for it, but the, the the troll takes his toll no matter what. So <laughs> very nice. Uh, all right, so that's a little, bit, a little bit off topic from what we were talking about. But anything else in this matchup matrix, Lawson, that's jumping out at you, uh, whether about Boro specifically or about any of these other top ten decks? Um, the only other one that I think is like kind of interesting is um kind of looking at Azoria Spirits. You know, it's the deck that had the highest win rate. Um, so I, I do think it's important to kind of look at the things that it was doing well and the things that it was doing not so well. And it's it's kind of simple. But um, at the end of the day, Boros Spirits, or not Boros, Azoria Spirits. Um, Azoria Spirits, the best card in the deck is Spellqueller. When Spellqueller is eating a magic card and then really hard to target because of rattle chains and because of other kind of taxing effects. Um, it is a really, really powerful effect. And a lot of the decks that have really powerful four drops um, that you are kind of hoping make it onto the board are a little bit worse when they don't make it onto the board. You know, uh, they get an 83% win rate against a five color um, enigmatic incarnation. Fires and enigmatic are both four drops. So getting those spell quellered is really brutal. Um, you know, Abzan Greasefang. Abzan Greasefang is built on a card called Greasefang that's a three drop that gets spell quellered, you know? Like there's there's a lot of ways that it can go wrong. Um the Greasefang matchup is also um additionally uh brutal because a bunch of these spirits decks are now playing a spirit that lets you tap two of your spirits to tap target creature as a way to combat the convoke deck. Um if you just tap your opponent's creatures during their upkeep, they can't convoke with them. Uh, so because of that, there is a, you know, a, a lot of extra random hate for Greasefang. If you just tap their Greasefang before the trigger happens, um, they don't get to crew the vehicle with the Greasefang. So you're like much less in danger of like Parhelion and all of that stuff. So Spirits is a deck that like lined up really well. Yeah, that's Shacklegeist, which you'll typically see four copies in most Spirits, both mono blue and blue white. Mm. If you're feeling really bold, you can even let the Grease Fang trigger resolve and then just tap the vehicle. Then they have to put the Parhelion back on their hand, but they don't get to attack with it. So it's just like a, the perfect card against Grease Fang. I actually had not thought about its applications against Convoke. It's a little bit counterintuitive, right? Because if I'm paired against Aggro, how can I spend two creatures just to tap one three-bit Inspector? Mm -hmm. But I guess, Lawson, you're saying if that's the difference between locks it on this turn or no locks it on this turn, then that could be game winning. Absolutely. Yeah, no. So I think I think spirits just lined up really, really well for the format. Um, uh, yeah, it's just like it is a very powerful deck that is aggressive and, you know, kills people quickly. All right, so that's the most popular decks, but there are a few that you picked out in particular that you want to highlight. So I'm going to turn it over to you here. Guide me through these. Absolutely. So um, I, I think the most important place to start is what was the thing that was the most powerful? 
And the thing that was the most powerful during this weekend was um, Elliot Raff's Enigmatic Fires deck. I did get to sit down with him um, actually um, after the event. Um, I was hanging out with some of his buddies um, and we went pretty in depth on kind of why the deck felt good, you know, what was going on there. And the first thing to know about it is it is a Karuga companion deck. So we're not playing anything small here. Um, uh, I asked him, you know, what are we scared of? And he went one drops. Um, so I got a lot of things that are good against one drops. Uh, his main deck has got, you know, uh, some temporary lockdowns in the main. You know, his uh, enigmatic, you know, can go get some really scary cards for those really aggressive beatdown decks. Um, you know, Tulsimir making you a wolf, gaining you some life, killing a guy, dragging the Lord, Atarka, killing a bunch of guys, uh, Atraxa, drawing a bunch of cards. Like, this deck does a lot of scary things as long as it hasn't died. And at the end of the day, when the deck that is 20% of the room is trying to be a mid-range deck and, you know, win the game with a 4-5 that, you know, is basically Siege Rhino. Shieldred is just a modern-day Siege Rhino. You know, we can be honest. Um, <laughs> you know, when one player's option is a 4-5 with Death Touch that does some damage every couple of turns and the other guy has a Coma and a Traxxan play, I'm going to put my money on the coma, you know, um, um, Elliot, uh, he went undefeated in the event. He started off 12 and 0. He took two draws to make it into the top eight. He lost in the first round of the top eight and, um, told me this really funny thing at dinner afterwards. Uh, he lost more games in the top eight of the tournament than he did in the Swiss of the tournament. Oh my god. <laughs> in his 12 match wins, he 2-0'd all but one of them. Um, so he had a single game loss through the Swiss part- portion of the event and um, picked up, you know, two more in the top eight. So a really, really fantastic showing. One thing that I will say that is important um, is most of these Fires decks that people have been playing are 80 card list playing Yorion. Um, he chose to play the 60-card Karuka version because if the most important card in your deck is Enigmatic Incarnation, um, playing 80 cards and still only getting four Enigmatic means you're playing less Enigmatic. So just play the 60-card deck that gets to have four of it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of taking the best parts of the Karuga Fires and the Yorian Enigmatics, both of which have been a while, around for a while, of course, the Yorian Enigmatic has a much longer history. But if you're saying what I just need to do is be powerful and just go way over the top of Rakdos midrange, you're giving yourself so many chances to just blow somebody out, right? So you mm-hmm. can do uh, your Enigmatic sacrificing your Leyline to get one of your seven drops. You can go Enigmatic sacrificing your Fires to get a powerful five. You know, I see a Kenrith here. I see a Tulsimir to stabilize. We have Elish Noor and Mother of Machines. You can sacrifice one of your threes. You have Fable of the Mirror Breaker, Touch the Spirit Realm, Temporary Lockdown. That can get Helia Radiant Dawn. This is one of your new four drops that allows you to go up the chain. Helia gives you your enchantment back, so you have another three drop for your hand, and it's still an enchantment creature. You can sack that to get a five next turn. In exchange for all that, right, you're you're just pretty slow. (laughs) So it's a bit of a gutsy call by Elliot. He must have figured out that... Okay, people are going to get tired of these aggro decks, tired of losing with the the one drop Boros deck, and are not going to register it in huge quantities. And I guess that's how it played out. Yeah. No. Um. 
Uh, I, I talked to him after one round. Um, if, I think it was around like seven or eight. He was playing against um, Mono Green. And the Mono Green deck activated Karin like four times in the game. But uh, his coma made 12 tokens during the game. And uh, <laughs> 12 is more than four. Uh, it was literally w- what his joke was. And it's like, yeah, that's a lot of snakes, you know? Uh, you know, his his opponent had never seen coma before, apparently. And he was like, oh, so you get one if you don't have one in play? It's like, no, I, I, I always get one. He's like, oh, you get one at the start of your turn? He goes, no, no, I get one both of our turns. And you're just like, yeah, 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 like... <laughs> That that's that's <laughs> tough, you know. That's that's not a card you want to learn about when it's entering play, you know. That's uh... <laughs> the answer to both of your questions is yes, and I get even more snakes than that. So, mm-hmm. fantastic run from Elliot Raff, who's Raff Sputin online. Oh, I didn't know that was him. Oh man, I, I it's good to know. Um, uh, next deck that I wanted to bring up, um, Demir Rogues. Only reason why I wanted to bring up this deck, um. I think it is the little brother to spirits when it comes to, you know, flying based beatdown decks in the format. Demir Rogues, um, there were two copies of it. I believe at 7-0 uh, on day one that actually had to play in the mirror match. Um, so there were there were two guys that were crushing the event with this deck. It is it is the aggro fatal push Thoughtseize deck. News at 11. I think the the thing with this format if you are going to be a deck that plays Fatal Push and Thoughtseize, um, you need to either be just playing the most powerful cards generically, which is going to be the black-red deck, or you need to find a way for your deck to capitalize and get to play one more powerful interaction spell. The Demir Rogues deck gets to play Drown in the Lock, which is a very powerful magic card. It just means you need to have the ability to put cards in your opponent's graveyard, The most recent addition to this deck that um, was really, really impressive to me was Invasion of Amonkhet. Yes. On coverage, um, a deck that we're going to talk about a little bit later, lost to Demir Rogues when Demir Rogues uh, went Thoughtseize, your Atraxa out of your hand, play Invasion of Amonkhet, uh, attack the Invasion, flip the Invasion, copy your Atraxa, draw five cards, Um, which is really powerful. So Lawson, remind us what Invasion of Amonkhet does, because every time I say I mention this to David, I'm like, hey, Invasion of Amonkhet is doing really well. He says, are you sure about that? <laughs> really? And I'm like, yes, it's really doing well. So he doesn't believe me, but I know you've been high on this card uh, from day one. Oh, yeah, I love this card. It's my favorite card to draft in Limited. I've got a draft deck right now that I'm sitting on that's got two of them. Um, but, uh, so it's blue, black, and one for a battle with four loyalty, defense, whatever we want to call it, explosion points. Whenever it comes into play, your opponent, um, discards a card, you draw a card, and each player mills three. All of those words matter for this card. Of course, you know, drawing a card is always a giant benefit. It means it's automatically replacing itself. Making your opponent discard a card is putting you up card advantage, and then in this deck specifically, since it's doing the each player mill three, that's just going to turn on your uh, Rogue's Lord. It's going to turn on your um, Thieves Guild Enforcer. So, you know, th- there's a very real chance where like your board will go from, you know, two or three power to I play the Invasion of Amonkhet. I get some value from it Im- immediately. And now oh, there's eight cards in the graveyards. The 
the rogues now have their uh, additional benefit. You know, the, the thieves guild is getting plus two plus one soaring thought thief is giving your team a, a you know, global buff. And then the backside um, Lazatep convert is a four, uh, four clone. That's just copying the text and abilities of a creature in either player's graveyard. So that graveyard could be, you know, one of your own creatures that you've lost earlier in the game it could be something that you either killed or thought seized away from your opponent, or even sometimes the the front side of the card does mill each player for three. So sometimes you just like mill their big scary card into their graveyard and then, okay, cool. I guess, I guess I'm going to copy your Atraxa or I'm going to copy your uh, Elishnorn. And now I have an Elishnorn, you know, like there, there's just a lot of things that it can randomly become. Um, you know, and because it has already replaced itself, we're, we don't need to ask it to do very much, you know? So Rogues has been making a little bit of a comeback. The concept of a Rogue deck has been around ever since, you know, Zendikar Rising when these new Rogues got printed. But I never considered it a serious metagame threat. I'm surprised that you're picking it out as a deck that's well positioned here. Is it because of the invasion specifically or just because of the way the metagame has ebbed and flowed? It is a lot of it is because um, of the way the format has ebbed and flowed. I I think that Drown in the Lock is the most important card for the deck. Um, the the thing that I will say about Pioneer is, you know, you you should be trying to do something really really powerful. That that should be your default thing that you're doing. And if you're not able to do something super powerful, you know, and when I say super powerful, I mean. The red-white deck is putting 14 power into play on turn two. The, you know, Rona co- uh, combo decks are just killing your opponent from a board where you literally had no creatures in play at the beginning. The, like, there's a bunch of decks that can do some really, really powerful things very, very quickly. Trying to play, you know, five-colored Nib-Mizzet mid-range soup is just, like, not what this format's about, you know? Um, and so if you are going to play any amount of interaction... The only good interaction spells in the format are Thought Season Fatal Push. And that's not quite enough. So you need a little bit more. Um, this is actually a really good segue to talk about the um, Neoform Atraxa deck. This is a deck that I know you talked about on the pod a while ago. Um, Hooting Mandrills, Tassiker. These are six mana creatures with Delve. Um, we love them for having two things. One, um, six... Uh, CMC, or mana value, I should say, uh, making it to where we can Neo for them directly into an Atraxa. Or the other thing that they do is they turn on Stubborn Denial so that you get to be a deck that has one mana negate. And that's a really big plus, you know? So the, these are the rules of engagement for the format to me, you know? If, if you're going to be interacting with your opponent at all, you need to have 10 to 12 really, really efficient um spells that interact and those spells need to be maximally efficient because the threats are the interaction is not unless you build around it so brent wagner um he's one of the actual hosts of the painful truce podcast i think um he also works with um mtg rants really great guy um he was playing the deck he a while back did really well at the hunter burton memorial open uh playing it in the pioneer side event so yeah, the deck is really powerful as well, um, but it's mostly leaning on the fact that it gets to be a deck that has interaction and also be doing something really powerful. 
Yeah, I'm encouraged to see this result from Brent. I know he's been on the deck since the beginning, since it first became a good deck. Mm-hmm. And I placed that moment in time slightly after I started playing it. Because <laughs> we we did a week on a track right when the car was first previewed, and like our version 0.0 of just like Neoforming for a track did not have summer denial. It made such a huge difference because what kept happening is that, you know, you could get a, a track into play fairly consistently, and sometimes you would still lose, right? You had to Atraxa, flip over your 10 cards, pass the turn. You know, if you're lucky, you had a thought season, and you thought season, mm. and pass the turn. And sometimes you would still lose those games. But if you add Stubborn Denial to the equation, Neoform for an Atraxa with Stubborn Denial backup, which the Atraxa finds, that beats almost everything. It's extremely difficult to lose from that position. I still found ways to do it, but it's pretty <laughs> rare. <laughs> Uh, I will say, and this is the thing that was um, probably a little bit less true when you were playing the deck and a little more true now, um, a lot of the black-red decks to be better against red-white, their two-mana removal spell of choice, because they do want it to be an instant, just in case there's like a Bushwhacker turn, has been Power Word Kill. Power Word Kill um, is the uh, two-mana you know, um, unconditional removal spell, except for the condition that it can't be like a demon or an angel or a dragon. But like how many of those are really hanging out? Um, Atraxa um, is a praetor, uh, but she is also an angel. So she does not get got by power word kill. So those decks actually have even fewer ways of efficiently dealing with the Atraxa than normal. Uh, So having stubborn denial is even better against them than it would be normally. So, yeah. If you do decide to pick this deck up, you will find that some things randomly beat you. <laughs> like the Shacklegeist that Lawson mentioned can just beat you. Like Because if you, if you can't block and get that lifelink off of Traxa, you might lose anyway. I noticed that uh, Elliot Raff is playing the full four copies of Leyline of the Void in his sideboard because he's a Karuga deck. Now, that card used to see no play at all in Pioneer. When Atraxa first burst onto the scene, those decks did not play any cards at all in the 75 that could take out a black ley line. Now, I see Brent has two cards. He has one Baseju and looks like one Terra Sunder. But most likely, Leyline is going to beat him as well. So that's the kind of thing where if the deck is off the radar, which I believe it's at about 1% metagame share right now, uh, and you're a master of the deck, you could do really well with it. Yeah. So I, th- I think that that is a deck that some people are definitely sleeping on. Um... You know, at end of the day, I don't think, you know, anyone's mind, I don't think it's going to be the next thing that breaks the format. Um, but I, I do think it's important to, you know, keep it in mind as a deck that does a powerful thing. And, you know, if you're trying to play um, Stubborn Denial so that you can have good pieces of interaction, this is a way to do it, you know? Um, the the Spirits deck, you know, we didn't talk about it, but they play Curious Obsession so that they can play... The um, the counter spell that if you have a creature with flying and an enchantment in play costs one mana, like that is a really really powerful um, you know piece of interaction. The things you have to do to play it, um, the card is called a Geist Light Snare, mm-hmm. are pretty egregious. You know you you have to be willing to play uh, you know Curious Obsession in your deck in a format that has Fatal Push and all of that. You know um, that is that is how bad the interaction is in the format. Uh, you know, we're, we're jumping through big hoops to play one mana, you know, efficient spells. So I take your point, although I happen to think Geisley Snare is like a beautiful card for the Spirits deck. Like, I think they're, sure. they're fine paying two for it in most situations. It's still mana leak. And it's a god draw if you have one drop into Obsession with Geisley backup. 
Okay, that still might lose the two fatal pushes. But maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Alright, so that's Neoformatraxa. So that's Neoformatraxa. We've talked plenty on Boros Convoke. Um I there's a lot to talk about with the deck. I could I could literally talk about it for probably 10-15 hours. The the super quick and simple of the deck, if you are interested in picking up the deck. Um one, do not play Gigantha. Gigantha is just like the worst possible card in your deck, um, even when it's in your sideboard. Um, if you play a version that doesn't play Burning Tree Emissary because you're really scared about having cards that are bad to top deck like Burning Tree can be, um, that's fine. I, I'm, I I mean, I would only play a deck that plays four Burning Trees in it myself, but if that's not something you're comfortable with, that's fine. Even if you meet the companion restriction for Gigantha, do not play it in your sideboard. Do not play Gigantha, even if it's free, um, because it is an 18 land deck. You cannot afford to ever spend three mana to put it into your hand, even if there was the old companion uh, rules of if it was just in your companion zone and you can spend five mana to put into play, that would still probably not be good enough. Turn seven or eight when the game has stalled out with your deck that has ornithopters and all of these other things, playing a card with no text but is a 5-5 just isn't going to be good enough to win you the game. Um, like it, you, you are, you are just giving away a sideboard slot. Max McVitie is the guy that did, uh, the, the best with the red, white deck this weekend. He's, um, you know, a long time star city games grinder. Um, he was playing, um, Gigantha. I did watch a decent number of his matches. He was not touching the companion zone. Um, it just like, it doesn't, it, it is not good. Um, you should play some cards that are really, really powerful. Um, you know, so I, I will get off my soapbox for Gigantha. Um, this is just not a deck that he does stuff in. I'm so sorry to let people know. I'm shocked to hear that. I mean, it just goes against all of the received wisdom about companions. What about against Rectos, right? The game's going to go long. You could attack through their bone crusher giant with your turn eight Gigantha. That never happens. The the thing that happens against Black Red when the game goes long is if Shialdred gains more than two points of life, you're dead. You you can't do you can't deal with both their Shialdred and four extra points of life. Um, like the that's just not really the way the deck plays out. Um, you also can't really beat the Black Red deck if their Fable the Mirror Breaker is making additional um, Blood Tithe Harvesters. You can't beat them if they're getting a million draws to find their first or second extinction event like letting the games go long with the deck is uh, a bad plan um i'm also a pretty big advocate to not be playing wedding announcement it is the the card that people want to bring in against wrath of gods but in my deck that does a really really powerful thing um doomwake puts it really well um the best way to think about the red white convoke deck is affinity just think about it like you would any affinity deck. Affinity decks do not generically play grindy late game, you know, Howling Mine-esque effects, one-sided Howling Mine effects. Because when I play my whole hand on turn two, I'm just hoping that my board presence is enough, you know? Um, if I turn three, have three lands, which is not automatic in a deck that's playing 18 to 20 lands in it, 
if I play Wedding Announcement, which is the best turn it's going to come into play, is turn three, and I add one power to the board, and I say go, I'm dead. I'm just, <laughs> you, you, you just lose. Um, so uh, the, the deck is all about going fast. You should try to continue going fast. Um, slowing the deck down for, you know, to get grindy is uh, a recipe for disaster. So I do have two questions for you, Lawson. So sure. in all your testing on Burroughs Convoke, I saw you trying out all kinds of wild cards in the one slot and sometimes in the two slot, because there are those flex plots. Mm-hmm. Apart from the Burning Tree Emissary question, there's also like, what's your last one drop? So what is your best recommendation and like, what did the community consensus arrive at for those last slots? So community consensus on the one drops that you can play that are not the ones that make artifacts or gleeful demolition. Um, Giant Killer was the go-to, was the, the one seeing the most play. Um, Legion's Landing was also pretty highly regarded. The one that I have been most impressed with is Kytheon. Hmm. Kytheon is really impressive because one, in matchups where people are not wrathing your board, um, when it flips into a Planeswalker, it is then really hard to get off the board. You know, if, if you can ever flip Kytheon before they get their wrath on turn three or four, then the moment they play their wrath, you sometimes just have a moment where, oh, cool, you wrath of God me. I have a burning tree and a bushwhacker in my hand. Burning tree, turn on my Gideon, bushwhack, attack you for 10. The turn after you supreme verdicted me on turn four on the play. Like that, that happens a decent amount with the deck. And mm. so Kytheon was really, really impressive. Uh, they, there are a ton of weird ones that I have seen people play. Um, um, oh man, I, th- there was an adventure creature that was a fairy that you could give something plus two plus one and flying um, <laughs> that I saw people test for a second as a way to like have some additional reach with the deck. It was awful. Um, Judge's Familiar was one that was actually kind of impressive when we were testing it um, and a couple people were playing it. Um, one, importantly, it's a creature with flying. The deck does not have any burn in it, so getting the last couple points of damage can sometimes be hard. If you have a Judge's Familiar and an Ornithopter that both have a counter on them from a Venerated Loxodon, sometimes that's enough to get enough the chip damage in. Um, also, the fact that you can use the Force Spike while it's tapped matters. So, you know, there are there are some things. The two-drop slot is basically um, Burning Tree, I think, is the go-to must. And then there are some people that want to try very hard not to play Forbidden Friendship, um, I completely understand with not wanting to play Forbidden Friendship. For anyone who doesn't get the joke on why Forbidden Friendship is good in the deck, um, when you play Burning Tramissary on turn two, because most of the creatures in your deck are actually white, you don't have a very good way of effectively using the Burning Tree mana on anything other than Burning Tree Emissary or Goblin Bushwhacker, or um, Reckless Bushwhacker, I should say. Forbidden Friendship is a two-mana spell that uses red mana that puts a white token into play for Convoke. So that's the whole bit. It is a card that you can play off Burning Tree that's white for Convoke purposes. So there's a lot still for the deck to hash out. You know, there's people that are on... Max McVeady was on Sheffit Dunes. Um, a lot of people are on Castle Embereth. Some people are on uh, Sukenzu and Den of the Bugbear. 
So there's a lot of little things still to get refined on the deck. Um, but there, <laughs> we have tested out what the ones and two, dro- two drops can be. A lot of them are really bad. So, um, you know, s- stick to the ones that are uh, seeing some play. Um, I tried some decks that were Skrelv and Mox Amber and all of that. I think Doomwake's actually going to be playing some of those decks on stream. I, I pitched it to him, uh, and he's pretty excited about those. So um, that that's your teaser for, you know, magic content in the next couple weeks. But uh, yeah, there, th- this deck is super, super sweet. If you are interested in playing the deck, I think the, the hate is gone. Uh, I don't think people are trying to kill the baby in the crib before it grows up to be evil. But um, yeah, this uh, th- this deck has got a lot going on. I see that Forge Devil has made it as a sideboard staple. It's fantastic. One drop, the 1-1 one, one pings you for one damage, and it pings any creature for one damage. Little devil there. And I see a Regal Leosaur, one main, one side, and Max McFady's list. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Um, re- Real quick, on Forge Devil, it's insane in the mirror match, because it takes a piece of cardboard off your opponent's board, so it makes their Convoke a lot harder to do. Also, anytime that you play a card in this deck that does not tap for Convoke, it is way harder to Convoke things on turn two, and that's the whole bit. That's all we want to do, you know? That's that's the entire story, you know? Um, Forge Double is also insane against Mono Green. If you win game one against Mono Green, and then when they're on the play in game two, and they go Land or Elf, and you go, okay, Forge Double, kill it. Um, that is a game that is a lot harder for them to win. And, uh, you know, being able to win games on the draw in Pioneer uh, is, you know, something that people have been asking for for a long time. So that's that's a good way to do it. Speaking of Mono Green, the next deck I see here is Mono Green. Looks like a last chance qualifier winner. Yes, Mr. Mr. Everett, um, also known as Aspiring Spike. Uh, I joked with him uh, when he qualified before he made any post. I asked him. Uh, if he's going to change his Twitter name from Aspiring Spike to just, you know, uh, Aspiring Pro or whatever. Um, he, is, he has now changed it to just Spike. So I'm I'm happy to see um, that he has taken the moniker. Um, yeah, no, the, the deck is really good. Um, you know, it, it has really powerful draws. Um, this is the deck that if your opponent does not respect it, you get to kill them. Polychronos was a huge addition to the deck. Um, not only does it help you be good at having a lot of devotion, um, it also shores up a lot of your kind of clunky matchups and the fact that it has reach. So it's really good at stopping, um, the spirits deck. And then something that is not immediately apparent to people, um, Polychronos is actually the best card for the green deck against the red white deck. Um, because when you flip Polychronos, it doesn't need to block. You just attack with it, and you gain six, and then it's way harder to lose the game. Yeah, so big congrats to Aspiring Spike, or just Spike. He's qualified for the Modern Pro Tour. I think everyone's very excited to see what he brings for that. That's coming up in Barcelona. His list is quite clean. Mm-hmm. Four copies of Kiora Behemoth Beckoner. Don't cut your fourth Kiora. Three copies of Pelucranos, and that's it. There's no more flex slots left. That's the entire deck. Yep. No, really, really impressed with the run that he had. Um, something I do want to tell people um, about Polychronos that is not immediately um, apparent. It is not worded like Wormcoil Engine. 
it's not when this creature dies. It's a tribal effect. Um, this came up uh, against me in testing. Uh, my opponent made 12 mana with uh, Nykthos, and they flipped their Polychronos, and then they played Polychronos from their hand, and then they played uh, another Polychronos, which seemed weird because <laughs> it legend ruled. But the backside of Polychronos, when it becomes the Engine of Ruin, says whenever a Hydra dies under your control, that's not a token, create a 3-3 reach and a 3-3 lifelink uh, token. And so he just turned the two Polychronos into his hand into a 4-5 and two 3-3s, and now was comfortably able to attack me for six, gain six, and I was very, very dead. So... Um, yeah, if, if you're interested, Polychronos can do some really, really unfair things. Um, I know if I had given my opponent one more turn, he could have just flipped the one that was in play. It would have legend ruled and it would have triggered from itself and the other one making four tokens. So that's gross. That's so gross. (laughs) Yeah, we were, we were really dead that game. Not, not kind of dead, super dead. (laughs) Yeah, the deck also plays Lair of the Hydra, which becomes a Hydra. Now, you're not allowed to set X equal to zero, so don't get too fancy with it. Um, something you can do with it that is kind of funny is you can attack with it as like a 5-5, five five, and then if it gets jump blocked, if you need to get the tokens, you can activate it a second time to make it a 1-1, one one, and then it dies to state-based actions. So, Oh my gosh, that's nasty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, woof. <laughs> All right, so that's mono green. Yes. And then final deck that I want to talk about real quick. Um, this is the only deck that I was telling people that if you wanted to play something that was off the beaten path, I love this deck. Rakdos Goblins. Um, really aggressive. Really, really just tr- try to put your opponent from 20 life to zero life. Um, the thing that I like about this deck is one, it gets to play Goblin Chain Whirler and it's not ruining its mana base. It's not doing anything else. Like it's it's playing it because it's a Goblin Tribal deck and having Goblin Chain Whirler in a format where I expected a lot of people to be playing green and a lot of be people to be playing spirits and a lot of people to be playing um, the Convoke deck. Like that is a really powerful card. And then the reason why it's Rakdos is actually so it can play Touch of Moonglove and Call the Death Dweller. Now, these are not magic cards that I expect literally any person on the planet to know off the top of their head. Um, I'll start with Touch of Moonglove because it's very straightforward. Um, one black mana, instant from Origins. A target creature gets plus one plus oh, gains death touch until end of turn. And whenever a creature dealt damage by that creature dies, uh, its controller loses two life. Um, if you combo this with Goblin Chain Whirler, it kills all of your opponent's creatures. And then they take two damage for each one. So if you're playing against Boros and it's turn four, you kill seven or eight creatures and they take 14. The game is over on the spot immediately. We're done. Um, And then actually the better card in the deck was funny enough. Call of the Death Dweller. Kind of similar. Black and two sorcery. Return up to two target creature cards with total mana value three or less. Um, from your graveyard to the battlefield, put a death touch counter on either of them, then put a menace counter on either of them. Um, this works the exact same way with Chain Whirler. If there's ever a Chain Whirler in your graveyard, you can just reanimate it. It has death touch and it kills everything. Um, this deck also is playing 
a bunch of um, one-drop goblins that whenever they die, deal damage equal to their power to anything. So uh, this deck randomly is also really, really good at dealing with Shieldred. You know, you, you can attack, and um, when your opponent block and kills your thing, all right, well, I'm going to touch the Moon Glove. It, it now has that touch, and your guy randomly died. Also, you know, it had a dice trigger, you know, or I'm going to give my fanatical firebrand. I'm going to reanimate it with call of the death dweller. And I'm going to put the death touch counter on my thing that can just ping something down. So um, this this is the deck that I was telling people, if you want to play something off the beaten path, um, this deck does really powerful things and can win out of nowhere. So. Yeah, this Rakdos version is not what I was expecting. It's placing a lot more emphasis on these one damage effects, right? Not just Fanatical Firebrand, but also the Fireblade Charger and the Cacophony Scamp. You have the Stork Prospector, so you can just pop those off whenever you need to. They work well with the Call of Death Weller and the Touch of Moonglove, of course, along with the Chain Whirler. Where Chain Whirler, these, these cards are replacing some of the more explosive goblins. Like, you know, I just assumed that you would have to play the Foundry Sheet Denizen. That's the one that gets a plus one plus zero for every red creature that comes into play. And maybe, I don't know, more lords, you could play war chiefs or something in the three slot, but Chain Whirler is a little bit of a heavier creature, envisioning that you're going to have to interact and take things off the battlefield, that you're not just going to run a roughshod over everybody. It can still do the goblin thing, right? You can still go off with Prospector and Snoop and Runevelt Horgmaster. So it's a, a true goblin engine after Mord's Heart, but it's got some interesting skills with the black, and then you get to play the great... Sideboard Disruption, Thought Seizes, Leyline of the Voids, Fatal Push. The other interesting thing about this deck that is not immediately apparent, um, it has a different combo than the traditional Snoop combos where you play a Horde Master and you, you know, make a lot of value and all of that. Um, the funny thing that this deck can do is that in addition to having four Horde Master and Hobgoblin Bandit Lord, um, the Battlecry Goblin, being able to pump the power of all of your guys, you can turn your creatures that aren't um, Fireblade Charger and Cacophony Scamp into mana, then turn all of that mana into pumping your team. So if you had like a couple goblins in play, you could sack them, get up to like eight mana, pump eight mana into giving all your guys plus four plus O, oh, and then now your Scamp and your um charger have five power each you can now sack them to um skirk prospector and just hit your opponent in the head for 10 so this deck also has burn combos to it that are not immediately apparent and having those guys also combo really well with you know like i said earlier the call of the death dweller and touch a moon glove by being random things that ping stuff and can get that touch is like very very reasonable um, you kill Skirk Prospector in this deck on sight, no matter what. I don't know if you've read this book yet, but that card is never doing something fair. Kill it. Kill it with fire. <laughs> All right, so those are some decks that did well at the DreamHack Dallas. Before we close, there is one last deck that we have to talk about because it's so sweet and it's the talk of the town right now. Talking about the new Pioneer Splinter Twin, or perhaps the new Demure Inverter, depending on which hype you believe. Archfiend of the Dross. Beautiful, beautiful card. It's Phyrexian Demon. Scourge of limited formats. This is one that David had his eye on from uh, right when Phyrexia All Will Be One was initially previewed because he thought 
oh, this would be a great way to make this uh, demonic pact harmless offering deck a little bit stronger. And he put together a list. I think we talked about it, you know, a month or two ago. He tried it. I mean, it, it didn't quite work, but the idea was, boy, Archfiend of the Dross, you know, it's this gigantic beater. It's two black, black, six, six flying demon. So six, six flying for four. Huge. It even deals damage to your opponents whenever their creatures die. They lose two life per creature. So it's just this massive uh, battlefield dominating threat that also has combo potential. What's supposed to happen is you're supposed to lose oil counters every turn. If you run out of oil counters, you die. But if you donate the Archfiend to your opponent, which was what David was trying to do, they might die. So that was like the concept, and it wasn't that good. But it turns out we just completely blanked on the real hotness. So Lawson, talk to me about the metamorphic alteration. I'm more than happy to. So um, metamorphic um, alteration, I'm, I'm going to read the card out for y'all because it. when you first look at it, you might have an idea of what we're trying to do with it. Um, but metamorphic alteration, sorry, I have to pull it up real quick because I thought I had it off the top of my head, but uh, it is a very, very strange card. Um, metamorphic, uh, alteration is a aura. So you put it on a creature and then the creature, um, that it comes into play enchanted to becomes a copy of another chosen creature. Uh, so it's a weird kind of clone for a blue and one. Um, and so the, the combo in this sense is you can play an archfiend, which is a giant six, six creature. That holds off your opponent's board really well. You know, you can't just beat down through this thing. And so your opponent's creatures kind of get stuck in purgatory on the board. And then when you cast your fire, uh, your metamorphic alteration, instead of putting it on your creature, you actually put it on their creature and you choose that their Thraben Inspector, Shialdred, Fable of the Mirror Breaker token is now an Archfiend at the Dross. Go. <laughs> and because if you do this to someone who's tapped out, they never get priority until the beginning of their upkeep where they have been asked to remove this oil counter from this thing that does not have an oil counter on it. And they just kind of die. And that's that's all she wrote. Um, yeah, it is. This is brilliant. It is brilliant. Um, the other thing that it does that is very um innocuous at first that i did see come up multiple times is um you can turn your opponent's good creature into a bad creature um like i i saw this turn a shieldred into a blood tithe harvester not to say blood tithe harvester is not a good magic card but it is definitely nowhere near as good as um you know as shieldred you know and and so it's also like a weird kind of removal spell in that case Mostly we're using it so that we can, you know, two-card combo, kill someone. Um, but yeah, super, super sweet. Um, there was only one guy playing this deck at the event, uh, and he was at the top 10 tables, you know, clearing up day one. So um, I did not keep up with how his event ended up. I'm assuming since we're not asking for it to get banned immediately, he did not um, end up crushing it. But it definitely was a sweet, sweet list. Yeah, this player is CFTSOC, CFTSOC, who is a Magic Online grinder and brewer. 
went seven and three on day one. I did not follow up to see um, how his tournament finished up. He put this into what is otherwise like a Grixis mid-range shell. So four Archfiends main deck, three Metamorphic Alterations main deck. That's your inverter combo where the Archfiend is pretty good by itself. Metamorphic Alteration also has its uses, just like Lawson is describing. Surround that with good mid-range cards. There are four dig-through times here, which become a lot more impressive when you're digging for this very hard-to-interact-with two-card combo. Now, the question on everyone's mind is, how did this combo just come out of nowhere, right? Did we all just, like, totally miss on this? And a few things are going on in the background here. So one is that, okay, Archfiend, people don't immediately think that is playable. I know some people ended up putting it into their Rakdos decks just as, like, a good card for the weekend. I know um, Bomac Courier, Matt Camo friend of the podcast, uh, ended up playing one main and I think two or three more in a sideboard and just stock Rakdos. So it's a known good card, the Archfiend, um, in that respect. But I've never seen anyone put Alteration on it. And it turns out that the card is just bugged on Magic Online. Like, you actually cannot execute the combo currently. Um, I, I don't know which card is broken, but it just doesn't do anything. <laughs> it's very, very sad. And it turns out that uh, CFT SOC had put out a cryptic tweet in mid-March and the tweet says something like, I think I just broke Pioneer with this broken combo and the ding thing doesn't work at all on Magic Online. But I'm not going to say what it is in case I decide to play it in a tournament someday. That's amazing. We all just forgot about it. And now here it is, early June. He's finally unveiled the beast and it's, it's beautiful. It's like uh, in Zoolander when he finally unveils Magnum and it's, we're all in tears. Wow. So it was funny because I um, since I was at the event wearing a suit and had, you know, my my, uh, you know, note taking device with me, you know, I, I, I think people thought that I was coverage. You know, they thought that I was with the <laughs> event, you know, um, and I had one guy pull me aside. Um, and I think this was probably around eight or so. And they were like, have you seen what CFT SOC is wearing or what he's playing? And I was like, I don't know who that is. You know, I and I had no clue. I was just standing <laughs> around. You know, he like pulled me aside. He's like, he's he's playing a metamorphic alteration with with Archfiend of the Dross. And I was like, I don't know what that means. You know, like I just that there's like I know Archfiend of the Dross. That's a that's a limited all star. As a limited connoisseur myself, that, this guy's mm. a nightmare. You know, um, and metamorphic alteration. Yeah, I have four copies of it on Arena. You know, because you know. <laughs> whatever you draft enough but uh yeah no i did not i did not put two and two together um i did see one time he did put metamorphic uh alteration on his own creature copying archfiend of the dross and then just killing his opponent because he has two six sixes with flying and then played a fatal push or something and his opponent just died because you know this card can't be left in play you know um the, the black red decks that are playing it in the sideboard, it's a sideboard option against other black red decks because they only let you register for Shieldred, you know? Um, so this is like Shieldred five and six for those decks post board to just like, I would like a big meaty four mana thing that says die or answer, you know? Yeah, that, that play you just described, that's 12 damage in the air, two Archfiends attacking, and then the Fatal Push does another four damage just for killing their creature. So it's easy to, to see you are just suddenly dead. I'm really excited to see what happens with this combo. It's a damn shame that it's bugged right now. I know that our pioneer contingent in the Faithless Brewing Discord is 
hard at work on this right now. You know, we're wondering, maybe you can just cut the red. Maybe this should play more like classic inverter. This is such a sweet interaction. And yeah, I would love to see where it goes. Absolutely. Um, but that is, those are the decks of Pioneer that were super, super exciting to me. Um, I do want to have just like a quick talk about like competitive magic. Cause you know, being that I worked with so many guys that worked really hard to be at this tournament, um, you know, to qualify for a magic tournament is difficult. You know, you had to win an event to get here. This was not a small event. You had to play 14 rounds of magic to finish the tournament. You had to go six and three to day two against other people whose average match win percentage against Joe Schmoes and, you know, local grinders is like 60%. You know, you you needed to have a 66% win rate against guys with 60% win rates. Most people are not going to day two. You know, they, they spent 11 hours playing magic because the event had technical issues and MTG Melee was not ready for a 1200 person tournament. And at one point the lights died on us. Um, you know, we're, oh, no. we're, we're going to disregard that for 15 minutes. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you had to crush this event. And if you did go six and three to make it to day two, if you wanted to uh, make it onto the pro tour, you had to come in the top 48. If you had gone six and three on day one, you had to go four Oh one to make the pro tour. So now that you've done this Herculean task, all I'm asking you to do is five Oh this league or no Barcelona, you know, like that, that is what they were asking to, to make it to the next step. So, um, you know, the dream of playing magic competitively is never dead. I'm not saying this to kill anyone's, you know, vibe and excitement. Um, but many, many people that are, you know, um, good enough to make it there did not make it there. It's not that they won't ever make it there, but you know, um, the, the best thing you can do, if you care a lot about an event like this, work really hard, you know, feel comfortable in the deck you're going to play. And if it doesn't go the way you want, get ready for the next one. I'm playing in a historic event this weekend. You know, there will always be more magic. So. Yeah, absolutely. And just keep in mind that, you know, if you're if you're on Magic Twitter and just scrolling through, seeing all these people posting about their wins and how excited they are to be going to the Pro Tour, people only post when they win, right? So you really get this skewed perception that oh, everyone except me is doing well. It's so difficult to do that. Like uh, Gabriel Maxson, Spider Space, he did that thing, right? He he ran the tables on day two and snuck in to the Pro Tour. Amazing performance. I think he was playing Rona Combo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got dinner with him. He was a cool guy. That's so difficult, right? He had to win out day two, and that means everyone else who started in that same position, I mean, how many of them actually made it? Like, it's it's just so hard. 1,200 players came into the weekend. 48 are going happily to the Pro Tour. Heartbreak for the next 1,150, and mm-hmm. I think you said it, uh, yeah. it perfectly, Lawson, right before we started recording, you know, I mean, hundreds of people in the room there are capable of qualifying for the Pro Tour are capable of being pros. They're just the numbers don't add up. Just the nature of the game. Take our lumps and we try again. Yep. Coffee breaks over, back in our head. You know, that that's all all we can ever do. Um and by the way, actually this is a very small side note. I'm gonna have to yell at Wizards here for a second. This event qualifies for Barcelona, which is a month after the Lord of the Rings release. That's 45 days from now. The Pro Tour 
in another country is 45 days from now. If you don't have a passport today, you can't get one. Yeah, that is a surprise. Every person that (laughs) qualified for the Pro Tour should have been asked, by the way, now that you have top 48ed, do we need to tell Wizards that you need to defer this to the next one? Because you can't make it to Barcelona. By the way, a flight to Barcelona, 45 days out, I checked, $900. Uh, You know, if you came in 48th place, the prize money for that was not $900. Uh, you, you beat out 1100 other people and are now being asked the question, congratulations for, you know, getting, getting the, uh, um, Atlas stone to the top of the hill. Would you like to continue on this new hill that we are not going to support you on? That is insane. Every one of these players should be given a ticket and this event should be maybe two weeks sooner, a month sooner, like... Logistically, this is this is a bad look, Wizards. Yeah, I mean it's a challenge. I mean this is this is the first weekend of regional championships. So the U.S., uh, Mexico, Southeast Asia, and Eastern Canada—they had their regional championships. There's three more weeks of regional championships after this. There's Europe next week, uh, Chinese Taipei or Taiwan, West Canada the week after that, Japan and South Korea the week after that. So. Yeah, I don't know how this all works logistically. <laughs> Maybe you can defer your invites. Um, it's not as bad as Lawson is saying. Like they've changed the prize structure at the Pro Tour itself so that everyone who who comes gets some money to mm-hmm. offset their travel. But yeah, I mean, it's they they meant what they said when they said this will no longer be a viable career choice. It's just mm-hmm. a fun thing you can compete for, you know, yeah. to challenge yourself and enjoy the game. Yeah, I uh, I talked to. Um... Uh, someone that top 16 that was super excited and then realized, wait, I don't have a passport. And so, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're jumping through those hoops, you know, imagine, imagine having a 75% win rate qualifying and then having a question mark of, did this matter? Oh my gosh. (laughs) You know, that's, that's tough. So. (sighs) All right. Well, whether you won or lost or did not play at all, there's more magic to be played. More battles to be fought. Lawson, thanks again for joining us today on the show and sharing some of your insight, your wisdom, and your uh, on-the-floor reporting from DreamHack. Absolutely. No, super great time. Um, I spent it with all the best people, you know, like like with every single Magic Tournament report. Uh, you know, the conclusion is the same. Uh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. But I spent it with people that mattered. The gathering's way better than the Magic. You know, news at 11. I'll see you guys next week. So. All, all that kind of stuff. All right, well said, well said. All right, that's it for us today. Thanks so much, Lawson. Talk to you later. Absolutely. Peace. Deck lists for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in next time for more previews from Lord of the Rings, plus testing results with training grounds. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.